I recently wrote this uh, paragraph to some friends of mine. We were talking about a few different things, and here's what I wrote. One of the saddest changes brought about by the 20th century sexual revolution was the loss of the word husbandry. Not all the cultural shifts were bad, but this one is a tragic loss, and I am totally serious. Husbandry is a really good word. No one ever hears it anymore except in references to trees and, and cattle. Um, horribly, the main idea behind this term has been abandoned. Look, look, in, your, look in your notes. You, you got a worship guide when you came in, right? Open it up. Look on the left-hand side. You're going to see there uh, the current definition from Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. Husbandry, the cultivation of crops and the raising of livestock. See, I told you, you only hear it about cattle. Um, uh, uh, number two, definition number two, the application of scientific principles to farming. Compare animal husbandry. Number three, way down at three, careful or thrifty management, frugality, thrift or conservation, and archaic, number four, the management of domestic affairs or resources generally. Notice that third definition, good management. For centuries, folks, that was the first definition. Amazingly, that was the first definition in ages where nearly everyone was involved in numbers one and two, in agriculture. Now, even though far fewer people are directly in agribusiness, careful management has slipped to third. Third. And the management of domestic affairs has been labeled as archaic. Why? Why did husbandry become archaic as a great term for careful life management? It changed because husband became a dirty word. In the late 20th century, you like that? In the late 20th century, um, men began to widely abandon their responsibilities to their families. In the late 20th century, uh, males did not carefully manage lives. Add to that the cancerous view of males in modern feminism, and in fairly short space, husband became a bad term. Sadly, husbandry as a term for healthy stewardship of life, it became archaic. Now you understand why I wrote what I did. One of the saddest changes brought about by the 20th century sexual revolution was the loss of the word husbandry. But I refuse to go gently into that etymological night. This is a good word, and we are going to resuscitate it. We need to understand husbandry. It is biblical. It is life-changing. Let me show you. Open your Bible to Proverbs uh, 27. Proverbs is right after Psalms in your Bible. Go to Proverbs 27. This fall, we are studying a fascinating collection of Proverbs. Um, it, it's marked in our Bibles as Proverbs 25 to 29. And in the Hebrew Bible, it's called Book 4 of the Proverbs. What these are is these are all Proverbs written by Solomon. But they had never been collected together, never published in a permanent fashion. And, and Solomon's great, 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 great grandson, Hezekiah, he got a bunch of scholars together, and they collected these as a book. And that's the book we're studying, Proverbs 25 to 29. They're about practices that, that make permanent impact in lives. So let's go to chapter 27 and learn about husbandry. Pick it up in verse uh, 23. Verse 23. Know well the condition of your flock. And pay attention to your herds, for wealth is not forever. Not even a crown lasts for all time. When hay is removed and new growth appears, and the grain from the hills is gathered in, lambs will provide your clothing, and goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, food for your household, and nourishment for your female servants. Stop there. That is husbandry. And by the way, that passage includes all four definitions we saw from Webster. As we summarize in our notes, resources must be managed. Through Hezekiah's collection of Solomon's Proverbs, we're taught that resources are a blessing 
when they are husbanded well. Look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. You must continually take care of the resources God grants you. God calls people to take care of His provisions. In fact, this was the very first mandate in human history. The first statement of God to humanity. Look, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Of course, I know what you were thinking. I know what you're thinking. In response to that, uh, to that passage in your favorite uh, Wookiee imitation, you're saying, wah, 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 which we all know translates as, that was only for people in the Garden of Eden, right? Before there was sin. Um, interesting thought, but in my R2-D2 voice, voice, I am forced to reply to you, beep, boop, boop, beep, which we all know means um, no. You see, God repeats that same mandate after sin enters the world and after all is changed by Noah's flood. He says the same thing, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. This is obviously the command for all human beings of all times and places. Fill the earth and subdue it. Practice good husbandry. Humans have a responsibility and an authority to, to manage this earth. That was a massive part of your country's thought. That was a massive part of American thought over its first three centuries and even into the 20th century. U.S. US thinking was deeply influenced by this biblical view toward resources. For example, the two most popular poets of the 20th century, Robert Frost and Carl Sandburg, they often wrote about work. They wrote about the import of taking care of God's resources. For example, I want you to look at just a section of Carl Sandburg's famous poem, Chicago. Fierce as a dog with tongue lapping for action. Cunning as a savage pitted against the wilderness, bareheaded, shoveling, wrecking, planning, building, breaking, rebuilding, under the smoke, dust all over his mouth, laughing with white teeth. Now, Sandberg's writing about Chicago, but he's describing here the work ethic of America. Notice the reckless, joyful abandon with which the American worked, laughing with white teeth. That came straight out of the biblical ethic found in Proverbs. Listen again. Proverbs 27. Know well the condition of your flock. Pay attention to your herds. When hay is removed and new growth appears and the grain from the hills is gathered in, lambs will provide your clothing and goats the price of a field. You see the work taking care of the grain and the flocks and the hay and the herds. This is the husbandry that shaped this country, which, by the way, likely explains why America was the first ever country to establish a, a national park. Um, but as the 20th century advanced, Robert Frost could see things turning. Even, even in the heartland of his Yankee home where the Protestant work ethic first flourished, Robert Frost saw it fading. Mid-20th century, he said this in an interview, the reason why worry kills more people than work is that more people worry than work. That's funny. And yet the tragedy of fading husbandry is that on this fallen earth, it only takes a short span of inattention for things to fall apart. Read verse 24 again. Verse 24. For wealth is not forever. Not even a crown lasts for all time. Blessings are never guaranteed to continue. This is not heaven. Things fall apart here. There is entropy. Moth and rust destroy. Robert Frost wrote a marvelous commentary on this verse. Okay, look, look what he wrote. The, the verse is, wealth is not forever, not even a crown lasts for all time. Robert Frost, pondering that, wrote a poem called Nothing Gold Can Stay, 1924. It's part of a Pulitzer Prize winning collection of poems. It's really quite brilliant. He says this, nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, 
Her early leaves of flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. So Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. He's right. Now, the Epicurean answer to the inevitable decay of this life is to live wildly and live only for the moment. Just be foolish because no- nothing really matters. Anyway, right? That, nothing lasts. But God's response is much wiser. Practice good husbandry. Oh, hold it all loosely, sure, because only God is sovereign. But do hold. Work hard to fill the earth and subdue it. And beware of assumptions. When we assume something's going to make for a lasting investment, we have to watch carefully to see how things really play out. Part of good husbandry, part of good husbandry is continually adjusting to decay and change because on earth, nothing gold lasts. As a heartbreaking example, consider the great American southern pine forest. Um, Twenty years ago, pine seemed like a sure plan for investment. High prices, very high prices for pine products combined with government, government policies that were pushing for more and more trees, and it made pine look like a sure thing for a long, long time to come. So many families across the American South especially took all of their investment money and they put it into buying land and planting pine. And they planted lots and lots of pine. That was the money that was going to pay for their kids' college. That was going to be their retirement money. And tragically, now many of those same hardworking people can't even afford to harvest their trees. Seriously, it costs more to collect the wood than it is worth. Uh, By the way, wildfires are an increasing problem because the woods are so thick. The point is not to pick on those poor investors, but just to remind us blessings are never guaranteed to continue. Now, don't let that depress you. Don't let that depress you because well-managed, a little wealth can accomplish much. That's the lesson in verses 25 through 27. Uh, When hay is removed, new growth appears. The grain from the hills is gathered in. Lambs will provide your clothing. Goats, the price of a field. There'll be enough goat's milk for your food, food for your household, nourishment for your female servants. This is a primer on the blessings of business. Look look at the elements here. Look at at what good husbandry provides. It provides expansion, reinvestment, family provision, and jobs for others. Gee, I wonder where Adam Smith got his ideas. Um, Folks, every brilliant economist in history, every brilliant economist in history is merely commenting on these verses. That's all they're doing. This is the formula for accomplishing much. Look at it. Expansion is implied in the verbiage. Okay, notice the difference between grain and hay. Grain is the stuff of life. Grain allows for bread, which is the, the the majority of the diet in the Mediterranean uh, lands, especially in Israel. By the way, that same is true today. Bread is the main thing. Bread, the bread of life is what one eats. That's great. But notice that that isn't all the good husband gathers. He expands into hay as well. Hay's different. Hay is continuous. In the climate of the Mediterranean, uh, hay is produced many, many times a year. By the way, oh, you poor city kids. Okay, hay is not used for humans to eat. What is hay for? What do you use hay for? For, very good for animals. All right, very good. Cows. All right, some Texans here. All right, you, you, you use it for animals. So when you're growing hay, that's showing you that you're producing milk and meat and clothing. That's expansion. Look at the reinvestment. He takes some of the money from his animals. He uses it to buy more land. Instead of getting luxuries, he puts the funds back into the business. That provides much more, more perfectly for his family than a uh, flashy new chariot could, right? And that's a big part of what good husbandry provides. 
Look, look, the point's not male or female. It doesn't matter if God's servant is male or female. Good husbandry, good management provides for the family needs. And that blessing reaches beyond just their home. Notice this, other servants have jobs because of the good husbandry of this family. God uses this business to provide for others and for their families. One of the wealthiest people I know exemplifies this so well. She and her husband, they started very poor. But they worked hard, and they expanded wisely, and they reinvested in their business. And even when they became wealthy, and they became very wealthy, money was never squandered. That lady, to this day, in her checkbook, has a register that has all 15 categories of their budget, and it has them all listed out with every day's allowance so that she knows to the penny exactly where they are in relation to their budget every day, every moment. And by the way, that budget is set according to Scripture and prayer. And the number one category is giving. Number one category is giving. Luxuries were never their goal. Instead, they were just delighted that their family was taken care of. And many other families, including my own, were blessed because of the jobs that family engendered. That, my friends, is good husbandry. Well-managed little wealth can accomplish much. Speaking of that, our annual vision for this year is founded squarely on this thesis. What is our annual theme again? Let's say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. Build to last. And, and to do so, to build in a lasting fashion, we must avoid greed. Uh, as we point out on the right side of your notes, greed ruins everything. Greed ruins everything. Slide down to Proverbs 28, and let's read verse 22. 28, 22. A greedy man is in a hurry for wealth. He doesn't know that poverty will come to him. Now verse 24. The one who robs his father or mother and says, that's no sin, is a companion to the man who destroys. A greedy person provokes conflict, but whoever trusts the Lord will prosper. Verse 22 tells the sad old story. In our impatience, we forget the lessons of husbandry. Last week, I was talking with a friend of mine who grew up in poverty. His father was imprisoned. His mother barely made ends meet. And now his family is firmly in the upper middle class. And as we discussed, he called to talk about a particular financial decision he's facing. As we talked about that, the idea of Proverbs 28 to 22 came up. Look at it. Solomon here captures one of the main problems that keeps human beings trapped in penury. Impatience. Impatience makes us abandon good husbandry in a passionate longing for the big score, right? For the quick hit. Instead of enjoying the journey, following God's ethics, practicing good husbandry with whatever little He has granted us, we become impatient, and greed fuels that impatience from within our own souls and from without. We are hit with all kinds of false lies based on greed, and we need to call them what they are. They're greed. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team sent me a great list of these. We were talking about this, and he wrote me these. He said, Wayne, here are some greedy lies that fuel impatience. Wealth will give me peace. Wealth can create joy. Wealth bestows personal value. Wealth will fulfill me. Now, you tell me, wise men and women, are any of those true? No. Can you say it a little more emphatically, please? No, they are not. Those are lies from the pit of hell. But man, if I start to let those creep into my thinking, I will become impatient. I will, and I will take shortcuts. Read with me from the New Testament statement about this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, you get the underlined text. It's verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money's not the root of evil, but the love of money is 
And often that love of money and fuels impatient desire, which can lead a person into unbiblical debt. I, I know. I know what you're silently asking. <laughs> which we all know means, well, what would make a debt unbiblical, Pastor? Thank you so much for asking. It's a great question. Let me pull together all the many scripture passages on debt, and it boils down to three criteria. Okay? To be scripturally sound, debt must be long-term. It must be what you can afford to pay and not more. And it must be backed by enough, enough capital and collateral to liquidate and pay off the debts. You got it? Not all debt is evil, but impatient greed leads to short-term debt. And short-term debt can hamstring good husbandry. In fact, it almost always does. By the way, you can pay it off early. You can pay long-term debt off early, and I recommend you do. But you never borrow for a short sell. You never go into debt for a speculation. You always think long-term. Debt must be affordable. It's not some, some paycheck scheme or some loan shark that is beyond one's means. Listen, it is not, oh, I know what I will be able to pay later. It's what I can afford to pay now. Thirdly, debt must be capital in nature. Folks, you've got to think through a clear path to return what you owe in case of an emergency. Um, let me just talk to the kids for a minute. Kids, listen carefully. This explains, this third part of what is said in Proverbs, this explains why college loan debt is almost always a terrible idea. There are exceptions, but it is almost always a terrible idea to go into debt for an education. All right? Here's one other thing impatience will do. It will sour me on regular maintenance, the regular maintenance that is part of good husbandry. We don't take care of our homes, our, our bodies, our families. They're, they're, every one of us has lists of things to do. We have our to-do list, things that should be accomplished. But most of those things, aren't, they aren't glamorous. Some of them can't be done in one sitting. They require small but regular investments. And so impatient and unenchanted, we put them off. David Wade of our team chimed in on this. He said, one of the most prevalent examples of impatience is the deferred maintenance that you see everywhere in businesses and in people's lives. It always comes back to haunt you sooner or later. Close quote, greed ruins everything. Now, verse 24 describes a particularly heinous feature of greed. We change God's values to fit our desires. This is one of the creepiest aspects of fallen humanity. Even, even those who are changed by God's grace can alter our definition of right and wrong just to accommodate what we want. One afternoon, my phone rang. Uh, it was an old member of this church. This guy was a brilliant accountant who had decided a few years before this phone call to sin sexually. When his life group lovingly confronted him about that sin, he resigned his church membership, he divorced his wife, and he left saying, and I quote, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. But here he was five years later calling me. I answered, and the minute I answered, almost before I said hello, he started writing, Wayne, I was wrong. I'm scared. I don't have time to explain, but I stayed on that path of rebellion against God, and now I am in serious legal trouble. So we prayed together, and I told him that he needed to face this in God's strength, and that even as dumb as we can be, the Lord Jesus Christ paid for our sins, and the Holy Spirit longs to restore us. He needed to face it in the Lord, and we talked about how he needed to get a really good attorney, and he needed to go to the police and turn himself in. He agreed that was the best plan, and we hung up. The next day, I received a call from his ex-wife. And she said that our poor foolish brother had not gone to the cops. He had instead used his skills to break in and empty her bank account. Further, further, he had broken into and emptied his parents' entire 
401k. He literally lived out Proverbs 28.4. He stole from his parents and others to feed his sinful choices. He somehow warped himself and said, no, no, that's not really wrong. And the man destroyed his family. By the way, that poor fool escapes to a South American non-extradition country. But he has not and will not escape from the Holy Spirit, will he? Now, we hear a story like that, and all we can think is, whoa, thank goodness we're not like that. <laughs> uh, really? Really? Have you, ever, have you ever stolen respect from your parents? Not given them due honor? Or, or have, you, have you ever argued that you deserve something from a family estate? Grandma said I was supposed to get that. Or think about other values that we fudge. Let's expand this. Have you, have you, ever, um, have you ever copied music? or programs or games illegally, by which I mean without paying for it. Here's a doozy with which I struggle. I'm sure you do not. Do you ever yell at customer service people who make you hold for three hours while negotiating their Byzantine phone trees till you finally get a person in Bangalore who can't speak English? <laughs> I, I know that yelling at people is almost always wrong, and yet in my frustration, I change God's values, and I excuse it, right? Oh, we are not so different from the horrible 401k pirate as we like to think. And verse 25 summarizes the outcome. A greedy person provokes conflict, but whoever trusts in the Lord will prosper. God makes us impatient. That leads us to shift God's values. And ultimately, greed kills. It causes conflict. It kills relationships. My friends who are blessed with wealth are often cursed by a long line of people who come to them with their hand out. And this causes both, both internal and interpersonal conflict. Now, not all those people are greedy, but enough of them are greedy that it can sour the wealthy person if he or she doesn't guard their heart against cynicism. That's why the text answers that prosperity comes in trusting God. Folks, this is a solution both for the asker and for the person who feels hounded. When we trust the Lord, we who have much are, are more at ease. We can judiciously weigh each request and we can give generously without rewarding greed. And likewise, we who have little, when we trust the Lord, we can be at ease without resenting somebody else's money. And chapter 29 fleshes this out for us. Um, over in 29, Solomon captures how trust in Yahweh is lived out in a greedy world. Look up here, verses 7 and 14 of Proverbs 29. The righteous person knows the rights of the poor, but the wicked one does not understand these concerns. Verse 14, a king who judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. You see, God's law has very specific legal protections for the poor. A righteous person, that is one who trusts God, knows those laws. And by the way, in case you don't know, the Mosaic laws regarding the poor are especially demanding about no partiality being shown either way. A ruler is forbidden from leaning a decision towards someone just because they're poor or just because they are rich. But I see very little of that kind of fairness these days. Instead, there is a modern tragedy that's brewing right before our very eyes. I see all these precious, wonderful young people who get sucked into cries for what is called social justice only to find out that they were duped into greed that was disguised as equality. John Adams, one of the founders of this country, who was all for revolution, John Adams saw through this idiocy. When the Constitution was being crafted, Adams, our brother in Christ, wrote specifically to the members that were gathered in Philadelphia, and he wrote them this, in our pursuit of general welfare, we must beware the destructive spirit of leveling, close quote. 
Please remember that greed kills relationships, including societal ones. Let's find prosperity through trusting God instead. You know what that's going to do? That's going to lead us to defend the rights of the poor without unfair leveling. This is critically important, folks, because God expects us to husband human beings as well. No thing we are commanded to care for is as important as human beings. All God's people said? Two more passages in our Solomon-penned Hezekiah collected text explained. Look down. You're in chapter 28 still. Go down to verse 27. Chapter 28, verse 27. The one who gives to the poor will not be in need, but the one who turns his eyes away will receive many curses. How you sow, you will reap. Greed destroys. And that destruction includes selfish people who refuse to share with those in need. Curses accompany refusal to help humans in need. I know, I know, some of you have been so beaten down, you're afraid to give. Let me tell you something really important. Generosity will not bankrupt you. Selfishness actually will. Selfishness will actually bankrupt you. Jonathan Satchel of our pulpit team sent me my favorite note on this. He wrote me and said, I love C.S. Lewis's quote on giving in his book, Mere Christianity, and he quotes Lewis. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Close quote. A few of you know that for the church's uh, future campaign, the campaign we did to secure Frisco Bible's future, my wife and I felt led to give more than we could imagine. You like that pun? That's pretty good. Um, we, just, we really felt the Lord pushing us to a number that was not what we could envision. And so we were praying and looking through it, and we realized, well, we've got quite a bit of money in our new furniture account. We save up for new furniture that would get us over the threshold. So we decided to give that, and we found joy, so much joy, in our patched-up 15-year-old sofa instead. We were more than content with that. And then this is what God's like. A year later, a friend calls up, and he says, hey, Wayne, my wife's decided she doesn't like the color of our brand-new couch, uh, but I think it would go really well in your house. Would you like it? Yes, I said. <laughs> before he could finish. This is not karma. Do not call this karma. That is something very different and actually rather creepy. This is a real principle that is established and upheld by the sovereign God. It works in the positive, and verse 27 shows it works in the negative as well. Yzma of the emperor's new groove is a great example of refusing to engage with the needs of others. I want to show you a clip from the underappreciated greatness of the emperor's new groove. Why have you come here today? Well, your Highness, I mean, Your Grace. Okay, gang, check out this I mean, piece of work. This I'm is Yzma, the Emperor's advisor, living proof that dinosaurs once roamed the Earth. And let's not forget Yzma's right-hand man. Every decade or so, she gets a new one. This year's model is called Conk. Yeah, I got that there, Yzma. <laughs> yep, that's Kronk. Now lately, Yzma's gotten into this bad habit of trying to run the country behind my back. And I'm thinking, that's gotta stop. It is no concern of mine whether your family has... What was it again? Um, food? Ha! You really should have thought of that before you became peasants. We're through here. Take him away. Next! But I... Okay. Uh -huh. Tell me about it. Hi there. Oh, your highness. Uh, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, you were doing it again. Doing? <laughs> doing? Doing what? Doing my job. I'm the emperor, and you're the emperor's advisor. Remember that? Uh, but your highness, I was only dealing with meaningless peasant matters. Whoa. Now, I may have 
Look at these wrinkles. What is holding this woman together? What the? How long has that been there? Good thinking, Isma. What do you say, Cusco? Whoa, no touchy. No touchy. No touch. Uh, excuse me, Your Highness. The village leader is here to see you. Oh, great. Send him in. Oh, and by the way, you're fired. Fired? What do you mean, fired? Um, how else can I say it? You're being let go, your department's being downsized, you're part of an outplacement. We're going in a different direction, we're not picking up your option. Take your pick. I got more. But I... you... Yzma. Uh, uh. What'd she sow? She, sh she sowed lack of care. You should have thought of that before you became peasants! And what did she harvest? She harvested curses. She is unemployed in pre-industrial Peru, okay? By the way, by the way, Emperor Cusco is not immune to this. He's going to be forced to learn the same lesson. They each learn what God wants us to learn. Open your eyes to what others might need. Look up here, Proverbs 27, verse 7. A person who is full tramples on a honeycomb, but to a hungry person, any bitter thing is sweet. Any bitter thing is sweet. Always remember, wastefulness is a matter of perspective. I mustn't be flippant about excesses that God has given me if there is any effective way to share those with others to whom it can be life-giving. This is why you and I support uh, local ministries like Frisco Family Services and Grace Bridge. We give both as a church and as individuals to sustain these efficient ways of getting stuff to people who have need. We cannot pretend that the problem just isn't there. We're supposed to husband people. It's the most important way to take care of God's mandate. Please open your eyes to the needs of people around you. And by the way, you know, of course, those needs aren't only physical. In fact, there are much more serious needs than just physical ones. Larry Moyer illustrates this uh, story in his book, 31 Days to Walking with God in the Workplace. I really like this little book. And Larry tells this story. Uh, a Los Angeles County parking control officer came upon a brown Cadillac Eldorado that was eagerly, illegally parked next to the curb on street cleaning day. Ignoring the man slumped against the wheel, as though he were sleeping, the officer reached inside the car window and placed a $30 citation on the dash. The driver never responded. He couldn't. Hours earlier, he had been shot to death, and the officer didn't look closely enough to even notice. The lost around you are spiritually dead. Let's be keenly aware that they don't need a citation. They need a Savior. Open your eyes to that need. All God's people said, amen. The bottom line practice seems to be stated very tightly. Proverbs 28, only a faithful work ethic blesses, not just you, but all around you. Uh, go up to verse 19. 28, you're still in 28. Go up to verse 19 and 20. The one who works his land will have plenty of food, but whoever chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. A faithful man will have many blessings, but one in a hurry to get rich will not go unpunished. Pastor Henry Alford was so moved by this call to a faithful work ethic that he wrote a beautiful hymn about it. Uh, in, the, in the latter 19th century, uh, Alford's song became a huge hit in America. It was sung in America, especially as a part of Thanksgiving celebrations. It's rarely sung anymore. However, to borrow from Peter Falk in The Princess Bride, our grandfathers sang this with our fathers. Our fathers sang it with us, and today I'm going to sing it with you. Stand up, boys and girls, stand up, if you would, please. The song is called 
Come ye thankful people, come. We're going to sing through it once. Darren's going to lead us. We're going to sing through it once so you can get the simple St. George's Windsor is the name of the tune. And then I want to make a comment or two and we're going to sing it again to safely gather in all the words. Let's sing together. simple tune, but I want you to look at the words. Now, do you notice the partnership here? This is, this is Proverbs in a nutshell. This is husbandry in Proverbs. God's the provider. You know, he, he is the maker. He's the provider. But He blesses people when we do good husbandry, when we partner with Him in gathering in the provision He has given, right? All right, think about that, and let's sing it again to cement this in your heads. Let's sing together. Go ahead, Darren. to my partner, Darren. Thank you so much. You may be seated. One of the founders of sociology was this guy, the German polymath uh, Max Weber, brilliant man. Dr. Dr. Weber summarized the effects of Proverbs 28. He looked at this chapter and he summarized it as a Protestant work ethic, right? And the reality of this ethic just won't go away. No matter how hard Max Weber is assailed by modern academics, Weber and Proverbs keep being proven correct again and again and again. For example, here's a very modern example, his runaway best-selling book, 12 Rules for Life. Jordan Peterson, I think, really perfectly captures the fantasy and in a hurry mindset as they're lived out today. The, the passage is, whoever chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. One in a hurry to get rich will not go unpunished. Here's what Dr. Peterson says. This lazy fantasizing requires no intellectual effort, and it leaves you with a sense of moral superiority. By the way, Peterson, quick side note, Peterson drives me nuts because I absolutely hate how he gets to his conclusions most of the time, but I, for the most part, really like where he gets to. Yeah, I know, it's strange, isn't it? Okay, all right, let's pick it up again. This lazy fantasizing requires no intellectual effort, leaves you with a sense of moral superiority because in your aggrieved victimhood, you assume you, you, assume you deserve prosperity. The only drawback is that this ideology achieves the opposite of prosperity. It destroys the antidote is effortful maintenance. That's his phrase, effortful maintenance, which is a long-winded way to say good husbandry. Now, we read that, and it causes us to sigh and say, oh, my goodness, thank goodness we're not like that. I mean, we all live a faithful work ethic. We're the first part of verse 19 and verse 20. We never chase fantasies and speculations. We're never impatient. Really? 
All right, then you won't mind taking a short quiz. Look in your worship guide there. You've got a score sheet there for six particular questions I'm going to pose to you. A or B. Very simple. Your answer is either A or B. Everybody mark down your answers, please. The first issue is Colossians 3.23, which says, whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. Okay, given that calling, what best describes, which of these, A or B, best describes your attitude when you walk into work every day? And, and your work, by the way, can be being a homemaker. It can be working in your home. It can be working at a business. It can be leading a large company. It can be being retired. Whatever it is God's giving you to do, what's your attitude? A, I am an blank, an engineer, for example, who is a Christian. That's A. B is, I'm a Christian called to serve the Lord as an, fill in the blank with your occupation, engineer. Got it? No, don't, don't circle part of each. This is a, this is a binary deal. It's one or the other, and there's a big difference. I, I am a pastor who's a Christian. I am a Christian called to serve the Lord as a pastor. There's a massive difference there, A or B. Number two, Titus 2, 9 through 10. Tell slaves, that includes employees, to be submissive to their masters and give satisfaction in every respect. They are not to talk back, not to pilfer, that includes time, not just things, but to show complete and perfect fidelity so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God our Savior. A or B? A, I fall short of that goal. B, that is an accurate descriptor of me. A or B? Question number three. Matthew 7, Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. A, I apply that golden rule in some areas of my life. B, I faithfully apply that golden rule in all areas of life. Number four, Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no, remember Moses, there is no favoritism with him. A, I am less than fully cognizant that I am under God's authority. B, I'm continually aware that God is the ultimate authority in my life and every other. A or B, folks? Circle it. Which one is you? Number five, Romans 12, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all people. A, um, I sometimes seek revenge or payback, but only when they deserve it. B, I always seek resolution, never revenge. A or B? Question six, how's your husbandry? What's our husbandry like? Question six, 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor, your good husbandry in the Lord is not in vain. A, I am less than fully steadfast in my efforts. B, I'm always excelling, confident in the Lord. A or B, that's it. All right. Now, the results are that I would assume nearly every one of us answered with at least some A responses, right? Raise your hand if you had at least one A. Okay, that's what I thought. By the way, in this particular assessment, A is not a good grade. Um, a stands for awful. A stands for awful. B stands for best. The point of this survey is not to beat us down, folks. It is to recognize that our husbandry needs help. Our husbandry, not just other people's. Thankfully, in the Lord, we have all the help we need. Amen?
All right, let's pray then. Let's talk to him. Lord, I pray for all of those who are studying with me today. What an honor to do so. And I pray for those who are believers in Jesus Christ that we will husband well whatever you've granted us. Please help us stop making excuses for our poor husbandry, for our, for our greed, for our laziness, for our selfishness. And let us take seriously this practice that really will make permanent And Lord, I pray for everybody who is not a believer in Christ studying with me. Please, let them see that you want to husband them. You want to shepherd them. Friend, listen. Okay, non-believers, listen. I'm I'm just talking with you right now. You, You answered A on some of those questions. Awful. That's all right. That's not the end of the story. But it does show you that you are in need. You are not perfect. You are not God. He's perfect and you're separated from Him. It's a horrible, sad truth. But God so loves you that He gave His only Son who died on, the, on that cross to pay for the sins of those who would trust Him. And He rose from the dead so that everyone who believes in Him could follow Him in everlasting life. Believe on Jesus right now. Trust Him as your Savior. If you just prayed to trust Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you. Those of you who aren't even here, write us. Thank you for doing so. It is an honor to get to engage with you. Father, I pray for each of us that we will, in trust of you, that we will be great stewards of everything. And we thank you for the offering. That's a beautiful picture of that. We're we're honored to be able to give. In Jesus' name, amen.